Certified, qualified, West Side host, Steve Lucky Luciano. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, you tuned into the greatest show on earth. It's the Hard Luck Show, coming at you from the bunker in Southern California. Sitting across from me, my co-host is Chumahan Bowen, American Indian, Southern Californian, elegant barbarian, here to rip shit up. Again. It's got like a clockwork orange type sound. Oh, come on. Oh, come on. Come on. Oh, my. It's a new era, a new dawn, a new America. Are you on? Come on. Come on. What is that? Come on. It's uh, Run the Jewels. Run the Jewels, motherfucker. Come on. (laughs) Come on. Scanners in here. Yeah, you're about the the gods coming, so miss me with the whoopie whoop. You take the devil for God, look how he doing you. I'm Jack Johnson, I beat a slave catch a snaggle tooth. I'm Tiger Flowers with a higher power, hallelujah. Life gets so bad, it feel like God mad at you. But that's the thing, it makes you want to grab some iron, right? I disabuse these foolish fools, but they feel the zero rotation. And I sound old blue eyes himself. Sean Lewis. Yeah. Certified. That's what I'm talking about. Engineer. For the hard. Very, very hard. Look. Show. Dude, the art noise? Yeah. This shit. Remember this shit, dude? Remember they play this at nighttime? Oh, this would be. Mike Messick would turn this on as everybody starts. The lights are coming on in the glove. Oh, yeah. Right? Like risky business soundtrack. This is one of my one of my favorite old cuts, bro. I'm glad you put this on. Yeah, this shit, dude. Some real like early '90s shit. Right yeah. There. Talking about uh. '84. Yeah, '84. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Super yeah. old, crazy, yeah. totally. I feel like this is the one uh, the radio you would call up the radio DJ. Like, I want to give a shout out, right? Is it the shout out? Yeah. I want to ask Clarissa if she'll go out with me. I want to. Yeah. I want to talk. This is a dedicate. I'm dedicating. This one goes out to Sheila. Girl, I'm sorry. I'm sorry <laughs> for everything that I did. You, you know, you're right. Own, you're my you only right. one. You're my only. You're one. my soulmate. <laughs> Just touch it one more time. Just the tip. Just touch your head. Just the tip. Over the clothes is okay. <laughs> I, all I did was feel her up. I didn't mean to hurt you. Listen, Talking about some 80s and 90s throwback. It was a padded bra. Uh, yeah, padded bra. Um, we got a special guest on. Um, Who we got? Man, we got one of my one of my close, close dear friends. 30 plus years. Um, I want to just bring on a dear friend of mine, man. I love a lot. My boy, Carlos De La Torre, to the show. Carlos. Yeah. Carlos. 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 Thank you, fellas. Great to be here, guys. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. 
the plan to make you wiggle with jiggle ah. like gelatin. Just think while I sing and to the bring struggle. You really can't miss with DMZ. No, you can't. You can't take time for me to pull your mind. It take a second to recognize the blondes are just loud. Yeah, what's up, Carlos? Yeah, you know what? You know what's funny, bro? It's that Carlos. I've known Carlos a long time. But I've referred to I brought up Carlos to you a number of times. Because how I refer to Carlos a lot of times, it's like, we're talking about fucking tough guys. And I'm like, listen, dude. <laughs> if I was in a physical fight, a barroom fight, physical fight, right? Yes, sir. And I had to pick somebody to be on my side with me, it'd be Carlos, bro. He's the toughest son of a bitch I know, right here. What makes he's him fucking so guy, dude? What makes him so tough? Dude, he's got he's got this motherfucker was like, go, like he's he knows how to fucking throw hands. He was a boxer, but I don't know, bro. No, I mean, no. I, what I, makes dude, him do that? Like, what makes him? I've tough? watched him in action a few times. He's just one of these guys that you just might make the mistake. It just he might smile at you and be like, ah, it's pretty. Boy. And then the next thing you know, you're either picking up your teeth or you're trying to do a push up <laughs> off the floor. Is that true, Carlos? It used to be true. It is oh, true. <laughs> it you, is true, you man. You know what, guys? Yeah. And I'd have a hundred guys here that could line up and say that that's the truth, bro. So you know, I'm just saying, I refer to him as that. And always through my mind, it's always like, when I think of the couple of dudes that crossed through my path of life yeah. that are like legitimately tough motherfuckers. Right. Carlos was at the top of the list. We and, did a lot of damage back in the day. That's yeah, sure. bro. You, yeah. You, yeah, we did. But <laughs> I, love this, I, I love this dude, man. This dude, this... This dude has been in my life consistently, man, for a very long time. And he's, you know, I've watched him deal with the ups and downs of life and, and just keep showing up and, and reinventing and doing different things. And, like, he's just somebody I look up to, man. He's just a real, real warrior. And um, and there he's been. He's been and watched me go up and down, too. Um, and he's just a really dude, really one of the smartest guys I know. And um, just... Got to have him on the show. Got to have this guy on. What is it? What was it? All right. Let's just say what was it? Mm -hmm. What was it about fighting that you love so much, Carlos? Oh, man. That's a crazy question. Um, you know, I grew up I grew up fighting as a kid, pretty much. You know, Where'd you lost my parents when I was young, moved in with my aunt and uncle, full of rage, you know, started boxing, you know, to kind of help with some of that, you know, at the YMCA when I was like 12, 13 years old and just kind of kept that up. And then as we, you know, you become teenagers back in the day in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, it was a different time. It was before everybody was pulling out guns and stuff. So you right. just settled your business in a different way. So just going to the, going to the clubs, being in the nightlife, having a, a crew of friends like, like Stevie and Paul right. and a bunch of the crew. Right. You know, we were out every night and, you know, three, four nights a week, you know, some, some, some stuff would pop off and you just kind of, you know, take care of it. But let mm -hmm. me ask you this. In the midst of fighting, like... Yeah. Take us through the anatomy of an actual, an improvisational fight. Not one that you planned and were, you know, guys set up, but what's the anatomy of an actual improvisational fight? Like, when do you know? Like, when does it start? When does it really start for people who don't know? Oh, wow. Uh, you know, that, that, that varies. You know, it varies as uh, as your testosterone gets, uh, gets uh, varies, I think. <laughs> you know, when you're younger... The anatomy of a fight could be as simple as what did you say, you know, and it's and it's on. Yeah, but you did know? you develop like an instinct where you're like, like, like for instance, I've had situations, and I won't say yeah. what they are because um, settlements are in place. Yeah, okay, but I have had situations, and this is true, and maybe it's just me making it happen. Where the minute somebody walked in, 
I could tell by the energy something was going to happen. Yeah. Did you ever have that sense? I still have that sense. Yeah. That, that's called situational awareness. When you grow up, <laughs> you know, the way certain people grow up, you're always like, even coming in here, you look in, you look around, you want to know what's going on. You know, right. you just, you're just so when you're, when you're hyper aware like that, for sure. Right. So did you so, ever like see somebody walk in and you're like, fuck, I, nine out of 90% were all the time. heads. All the time. Yeah. All yeah. the time you back in the day. Yeah. You know it all the time. The, the, the fuse is lit. Yeah. And again, as you get older, you, you still, I think you're still aware of that kind of stuff, but then as opposed to putting yourself in the path of that. Right. Now, you know, you have a family and you're older and you know, you have stuff to lose and you're just like, I'm going to, I'm going to stand over here. Right. And let that knucklehead do what he's going to do. You okay. Know? So then yeah. in the anatomy, the knucklehead comes in. Yeah. The fuse is lit. Yeah. Right. Where for you between that moment and the moment you decide to throw down. Yeah. Right. Where does that shift happen? Because there's a point where you're like, I don't know. Where's the line? Yeah. Mm -hmm. For you. Uh, You know, I I think I never saw myself as an instigator. Right. I just saw myself as a finisher. So I would let people do their thing. But as soon as it just got, you know, close, you know, it was going to be a it was going to be a situation for sure. Okay. So what does close mean to Carlos? You know, in your face, trying to put their hands on you or uh, even like being, you know, super belligerently abrasive. You know, I, I just that was it for me. You know, I'll give you one good one yeah. good story. One yeah. good line. Yeah. Remember uh, Peanuts? That club yeah, that Charlie yeah. Brown. Yeah, way yeah. back in the Charlie day. Charlie Brown and Snoopy. Oh, yeah. oh, the club. <laughs> no, this club on Santa Monica Boulevard. Right. There was this one time that we were in this club and we were a bunch of friends and this dude. Like just it was just a stupid thing where you're just walking through the crowd. It's a crowded place, and you bump into someone, and they just got a bad attitude, and they just start giving you, you know, just talking mad smack at you. And, <laughs> and I was like, dude, it's a club. Like yeah. chill out. We're, yeah. we're busy. Like what the fuck? Right. Fuck you, man. I'm gonna beat your ass. Blah 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 blah. Like all that kind of stuff. You know. I'm like, listen. I'm telling you right now. We're in a club. It's all good. Right. Chill the fuck out. Right. Fuck you, man. He like kind of pushes me. So I go. So I start taking off my shirt. I was just wearing like a nice dress shirt that I was wearing or something, a button down shirt. And I was with a couple of my friends. I took my shirt off and he's like, and he was like, oh, what the fuck? You all buff. You think you're badass? Blah, 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 blah. I'm going to fuck you up. And I looked at him dead in the face and I go, no, man, I just don't want to get any of your blood on my shirt. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. And that was, and he was just like, all the fight just went out of him. He was just like, uh, no, nah, man, it's cool. I'm like, no, now nah, it's not cool. <laughs> I've taken my shirt off. Now you, I'm yeah. here. Now you yeah. can't leave. Yeah, exactly. It was that moment. So yeah. you know, stuff like that. But for the most part, hey, man. now I avoid all that stuff. Right. No. Listen, and, and dude, like this dude, I'm gonna tell you something too. Yeah. Like I, everybody get into a fight. Yeah. Ain't nobody tripping. But we know that if Carlos was involved in the fight, yeah. he's gonna get some major shit. Like he'd be with girls that hate that he fights. Like, he'd get the third degree. Forever being in a fight. Then you wouldn't see Carlos out for like a month. He got in trouble for getting into a fight because he doesn't know how to act like a human being. What was that, that Roxbury? Like an animal. Yeah. We oh, knocked yeah. those three people out and Cameron had to come around and pick us up like down the block. <laughs> you knocked out the bouncer or something. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Like, there was three dudes. I, I turn around after we got done and I look and there's three dudes laid out on the floor. Right. The three guys that came together that were real tough were all asleep on the floor. We take off running. But yeah, there was some... Crazy different stories. You, and, hey, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a fight like with Carlos, like on your side? Are you guys yeah, a fight? Yeah, that's what yeah, we're talking about. 
So what? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> describe that incident. Carlos can because he's a you know. But what was that incident? How did that happen? We were we were at a club and we were with our girls. Yeah. And there was music playing. And these dudes were acting like kind of belligerently drunk, and they kept on like bumping into the girls. I even had to like tell them, "Hey, man, watch where you're going." <laughs> Just stepping on their bags, bumping into what? them every. And I think Evelyn, yeah. Joey Castillo's girl, got like bouncing into, and like she even said anything. Right. And we had already said something to these dudes. You knew those know? dudes too. They were kind of yeah, idiots like from back on the scene, king, or king dudes yeah, 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 or something yeah. like that. Like kind of like big white boy dudes, you know, king, like king, they thought they were just like king, king. Yeah, it, it was this club in Hollywood. They were like rockabilly dudes. Yeah. Or oh, okay. Like all right. Yeah. All right. Stray cats. Both. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and I think we just I don't know. I, I just remember a, I had already had like my eye on like the one guy that yeah. I, that I had a problem with, and I just remember like I hit the, I I just I just took off him. Like he didn't even really know. <laughs> it was kind of a sucker punch, but I confronted him and just took off him. He thought I was going to say something to him. Instead, I just lit him up. And as soon as I do that, Juman, I feel like a, like a, a brush of like wind energy alongside of me, and it's Carlos. And I don't even know what he did because Carlos is a boxer, dude. So it never you don't never see Carlos like in a like like wrestling. It's always like Carlos is like going, like making some smooth move and the guy's like laying down. Like you don't see, I've never actually seen a hit the dude. It's that fast. You see that, the, the um, byproduct of it. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. So it's like, Carlos like, but some dude's like got his lip hanging off. That's a, oh man. Yeah. But, um, I remember another, and I'll tell you another thing. I remember Carlos, meantime, me and Carlos were just play shadow boxing. Yeah. Just play. Right, and I'm like, and before I could even like throw something, he had like tapped me like a couple times in the face and in the chest, and I was like, you did that dude just do that to me, dude? Like he hit me like six times before I could even move. But he told me he's like, he gave me two, he gave me two words of advice yeah. that I always remember. I've used this. He gave me two words of advice. I don't remember. Let's hear it. I'm gonna tell you them, and they've, they've helped me, dude, through the years. Yeah. He was like, the first one he told me was, most guys. That most fights, most guys that fight you, oh yeah, can only throw one punch. They're gonna keep on throwing. Like most fighters aren't gonna throw two punches. They're gonna well, try and well on you with one arm. Right. They only have one punch to throw. Right. Most guys. And then the other one, you told me was like, dude, just move your head. <laughs> if you move your head, most people don't move. Right. They just stand right. there. Like yeah. Yeah. if you if you duck and move your head, the chances are they're not gonna be able to fucking hit you. Yeah. Right. Because most, you know, um, and I just remember both those things like. You know, it's and it's rung true. You know, right? But, uh, What's the biggest guy that you've ever had to lay out, Carlos? Oh man, I don't. Know. Come on, big dudes. <laughs> I'm five eleven, one hundred and eighty five pounds, so probably two sixty. You know? Yeah, yeah. And I'm asking you another question. So, who who is there? Any who got the best of you one time, one night? Is anybody just fucking cold cocked you and you were just like, fuck? Yeah, man, that happens. You know, you get hit, you know, over the head or from behind or whatever it is. You know, I've been I've been fight training my whole life. I, I boxed for a long time and then I gave it up for a little while. And then I started doing, uh, um, you know, Muay Thai for a bit. And then I, I've been training jujitsu for several years. Yeah. Um, that's the humbling thing. Why? You know? Because, you know, you come from this background of being a tough guy and you can you right. know, take care of yourself. And now you're older. And then you go in as a white belt and you start rolling with these guys and you know, you're 20, 30 pounds bigger than some of these guys that are brown belts and like, you know, whatever. And they're 135, 140 pounds. And they're just like 
tapping you left and right, choking the life out of you, man. It's, it humbles you very quickly doing martial arts, especially if you're an aggressive person and you come from like this background of being a tough guy from the street. Right. And all of a sudden you're like on the mats with these guys that if you saw in a bar, you'd be like, I'm going to knock the piss out of this guy. Right. right. And then all of a sudden you're like, Unconscious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're waking you up. Yeah, yeah. you're like, what happened? When did I go out? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man! And then you start again. You know, like that's what that is. It's like uh, you know, tapping now is like, I've killed you. Mm-hmm. Let's start again. Right. You know, right. basically checkmate. So it's yeah, exactly. So Sean, like, you trained Muay Thai, right? Yeah. No. Yeah. What belt did you reach? There's no belts in yeah. Muay Thai. Mm. All right, so how do they tell that you, what degree are you? Yeah. If you get punched in the face or not. <laughs> <laughs> or kicked in the head. Mm. How, how many years did but you? But I'll tell you a story. Do I did uh, I did I jiu-jitsu for a, a little bit, like six months. Blue eyes, tough stories. And, uh, and a dude came in, man. Oh, my God. I was scared of this guy. Especially because he was, he was doing both. He was doing Muay Thai, and I was doing both, too. But he was doing Muay Thai and jiu-jitsu. And this dude was... Huge, like big. Yeah. I was. I did not want to face this guy. Right. Um, but we did some jujitsu, and he slammed me so hard, landed on top, broke, probably not broke, broken, but maybe like bruised, bruised a rib of yeah, mine. That shit hurts. But I ended up rolling on on top of his back and choked him out, and he was very mad, and I felt like <laughs> a fucking king, because this guy was like two sixty. You went you know, home yeah. and just threw a hard oh, one. Dude, the I was like, huh? for a week I was Your walking dick was around hard like, for like yeah. A <laughs> but, uh, Your I wife mean, was like, what? what's gotten into you? That's when I took that walk, walk and he ran into the homeless guy. In the that almost <laughs> lost his life. <laughs> like, hey, homeless, you don't want to. So you, you don't want to be lifeless, homeless. You don't want. You don't want one of these. All I got is two fives. <laughs> That's right. the interesting thing about that, though, too. Like, I was doing both for a little while, and uh, it's like almost like the, the, the two things serve a different master, Completely. you know? Like, the, the Muay Thai thing, you go to the gyms and boxing gyms, and everything's very aggressive. You know, ha-ha, right. you're throwing punches and elbows, and you're in clinches, and people are getting super heated. Yeah. And then you go and roll, and it's like you're basically hugging someone for an hour. Mm-hmm. You know, right. even though you're trying to choke them, or you're right. trying to, like, tap them, or, like, put some kind of lock on them or something, like, it's this... It's this dance that's happening, and you leave there, and that's why, like, you see all these, like, hardened Brazilian dudes and stuff, lifetime of jiu-jitsu, and they're, like, the nicest people, like, all right, of them. Right, Unless you're going to some MMA gym, and then there's a bunch of meatheads in there that are trying to, like, you know, punch show and kick. And, yeah, and show you what's up. Yeah. But for the most part, you go train at, like, a like a pure jiu-jitsu gym, and uh, there isn't any room for any bullying there at all. Like, the mm. only bully is the instructor. And if you get a guy that comes in super aggro <laughs> like that, the, the higher belts and stuff will take care of him very quickly. right. right. You know, I, 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 the guys that I've met that are at that level, man, are like the sweetest guys in the world. Yeah. You'd have to fucking pull a gun out to get these dudes to fight you yeah, on the yeah, street. Yeah. You know, it's right. just sweetheart. And I, I would go with Jamie Yeager down to Black House, which yeah. is Spider's uh, spot and met all those guys. And these guys are the most gracious. Yeah. You know, and but but it's really like that in life. Like most of the badass dudes I know. Yeah. Ain't out there bullying and fucking like they don't have anything to prove. Like guys that really know what they got, they're not out there proving that. They're, well, you know what it's like, like to actually get in the ring or you know get on the mat with someone that's really good and have them fuck you up, you know. And you know also you have a really clear understanding of how, you know, how dangerous it can be and how how you can seriously hurt somebody regardless. So most of those guys, you know, it's really going to be about life or death, and that's it. I mean, how many how many sparring matches or or things in the gym happen? And guys get heated and punch each other really hard, but afterwards, yeah, you just you're they're good. just like, oh man, like so mm-hmm. much respect is is shared between those yeah. guys. Yeah, Carlos, you you know, um, 
Listen, Carlos, you know, t- talk, tell me a little bit, man. You know, you've you've gone, you were involved in a couple different things. And Chumon was like, yeah, what is it? When we were talking about, he's like, Carlos do? And I was like, man, you know, oh, Carlos boxed. <laughs> but Carlos professionally, he produced. Uh, for a very long time, Carlos was producing. He was uh, traveling everywhere and producing. Producing what? Commercials and all sorts yeah. of things. And that's what he worked at. And, and, I, and I didn't know the the exact years but i had told chumahan for one he he got into the medical marijuana game earlier he was one of the first guys open he knows a lot about how we've gotten here with cannabis and the history and laws and stuff and and i wanted you to kind of take us through you were you were producing and then you got into cannabis can you kind of take us through that because well let's start with how did you get into producing Oh man! So uh, how I got into produce? How I got into producing? So after while I was in college, I started working in the. Uh, I just started working in production. Growing up in L.A., you know, it was just a right. way working as a PA. Started working for Dick Clark. Remember that guy? Mm-hmm. American. Remember Bandstand. that guy? Yeah. That guy was yeah. like lived yeah. forever. Yeah, yeah, he did. He just died actually. Not right, exactly. Ago, I worked for him on a, on a show called Rock and Roll Summer Action, which was like a. <clears throat> it's kind of like an MTV beach party, but like the precursor to MTV beach party. That's so fascinating. So yeah, did we used you, to shoot. Did you see, were you ever able to see what it was that Dick Clark did that kept him looking so young for so long? Was he like a health nut? I think he, I think he slept like in a coffin at night or something. I don't know. <laughs> He's like 140 years old. No, he just, uh, I heard he was also kind of, he like, was hardcore, man. Yeah. He was like filthy mouth like hardcore like Get yelled at people all the time he was a mean he was, was a mean he? dude yeah he was God. super mean because when yeah. he was on bandstand he seemed like oh, just joe america you know real white bread you nice, know how that nice. goes cameras I mean, off behind closed doors yeah, people are he was a trumper <laughs> we all know that where's my grabbing <laughs> pussy and yeah. all that up god oh, damn it god. i told you anybody with acne cannot be in my eye line it fucks me up go all on right, go ahead oh man it was back in the it was back in those days too in the 80s when you know, that was the deal. Like, everybody was, not dick, but, like, you know, the people producing the show and stuff. It was like, go get me some young girls from the beach, and they're all doing right. cocaine. It was like, right. a, it was a different different time in production mm-hmm. back then, which was wild. But Dude, the Eagles, <clears throat> I, just to go off of what he just said, I was reading Don Felder's uh, mm-hmm. autobiography, and he was saying that the Eagles went so far as to print pins up for the chicks that they were going to bang backstage, and they had a whole roadie crew set up. Their oh, whole yeah. job was to pull all these broads and bring them backstage for the after show so they could bang them. And he said that they were doing a gram each, more than a gram a day of coke. <laughs> That's crazy. It. Yeah, and it. still being able to have sex with these girls. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. And so, um, and so then you went. So you went from Dick Clark. So I started doing that, and then after school, after college finished for me, I uh, I started working for LA Gear. Yeah. So remember LA Gear, that yeah. brand. Yeah. So it was like a. It, it was all in-house production. I was doing a lot of their like in-house production, coordinating on their photo shoots and right. some sh- and and I don't know if people remember this, but like. There was a time there at LA Gear that their sneaker line, it was a streetwear brand, and then all of a sudden it started becoming like a sports yes. sneaker, and they, right. we signed like Akeem Olajuwon, and Michael, later Michael Jackson, and uh, Joe that. Montana. So it was like number three behind Nike and Adidas for a really long time. Like it yeah. passed, and it was giving Adidas a run for its money. It was crazy, and these people knew, had no idea what they were doing. Right. It was a bunch of these same people from the 80s partying and stuff, but they were doing it all in-house, and they had made so much money. 
and the brand was doing so well. So there was that these period. Are the these are pre. These are the Skechers people. Yeah, exactly. Right. This is before yeah. Skechers. Oh, what? Yeah, like, yeah, these are yeah. Skechers guys. Before they became Skechers. Yeah. It was kind of yeah. It was that. So they made a pile of money, and I was doing that for a while. Robert Greenberg. Robert Greenberg. Yeah. There it yeah. is. I know his son. I'll yeah. Go on. And uh, so after that. Uh, I started working for this weird production company in uh, in Santa Monica. This guy who's actually, I think he's in jail right now. He was this uh, uh, Lebanese guy that was like the shiftiest, shadiest, like craziest guy. He was like 35, but he looked 50, you know, could sell anything to anybody. And he was just hustling. He was on the hustle. Yeah. And uh, so I did a, we ended up doing this boxing documentary that I was consulting on called uh, Champions Forever. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was kind of a taste of like doing feature length stuff. And so left that after about a year or so with uh, another friend of mine, Dino, who I think you know, remember Dino? Right, yeah. We started a little production company. Oh, on Robertson? Yeah. The one on Robertson. Exactly, on Robertson, yeah. And we made a couple small films. One was with uh, Morris Day and Jerome Benton. Remember oh from God. the time? Yeah. yeah. We did this like weird, oh. like low budget, terrible movie. We were like 25. We had no idea what we were doing, but uh -huh. we're, you know, you're fearless and you're just doing it. Yeah. So we made this movie called The One For Me. And then uh, my passion project, which I helped write and, and co-wrote, which I got I don't know if you ever saw it, but we did, we made a boxing documentary. Yeah, of course, bro. Called, well, you got yeah. Salvador Sanchez's yeah, brother yeah, 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 and Arguello. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Latin Legends. We did Dude, this. We did this. You got to see this, bro. Yeah. You have to see this, you guys. So it was a, it was a, it was a documentary we made. Um, called Latin Legends, which was like the chronology of the lives of the greatest uh, Spanish fighters mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. So it was like uh, Kid Gavilan from the 50s, the old Cuban fighter that fought like Sugar Ray Robinson three times. And then it was like Roberto Duran, Julio Cesar Chavez, Alexis Arguello, um, and uh, uh, Carlos Ortiz, a Puerto Rican fighter from the 70s. All multiple. Salvador Sanchez. Bell and Salvador Sanchez, who died in his mm -hmm. prime in a car accident. So, you know, just we went down and interviewed them and w saw where they grew up and, you know, we're trying to show boxing in a really positive light. It was during that whole Mike Tyson craziness when he was getting ready to go to jail and stuff. So, uh, yeah, man, it was a, it was a amazing experience to be able to go and hang out with Bro Duran in Panama and like he was he my idol dope, you know so dude, yeah. hey so wait, so wait a second slow down right there because that's interesting yeah. so you're now <clears throat> how much did you know about documentary filmmaking at that time nothing right zero I mean all we, you, you know, know is been, what you saw and, and the production experience you had right well I mean I, I'd worked on the you know Champions Forever documentary which was a, a documentary with Ion Pictures that uh, was like a, a Basically, it was like the greatest heavyweights of the 70s. It was mainly about Muhammad Ali and all the other fighters right. sitting around a table and uh, basically like, you know, it, interviewing them. They're wearing tuxedos, talking about their fights with, with Ali and their experiences and then intercutting it with like those fights. The so actual th footage. So that was that was our plan. We were going to do the same thing, but for Spanish fighters. Right. Um, and, in the sort of, you know, all the different areas across the the, the 30 or 40 years of, uh, of, of that time. And. Long story short, you know, we were going to be working with a bunch of footage that Don King owned. He screwed us over like he does for everybody no. else. Yeah, no, Don really. King? Yeah, he really did. Yeah, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, he's really not a good guy. Um, and no. so, uh, yeah, and so it took us a little longer to, to get the thing done. But it, it was, you know, we were super happy with it. It was a great experience. What's it like to go to Panama, right, at your age at that time? At that time, mm -hmm. no internet. No interwebs. Yeah, wild, huh? Right? And yeah. you go down to Panama to shoot some footage and hang out with like one of the greatest fighters of all time and hear the stories and stuff. I mean, take us through that a little bit. What is that like? 
I mean, on the one hand, you're doing a job, right? So you're there to, to do your job. But on the other hand, as a fan, you're just like, I can't believe I'm down here with Roberto Duran. I'm hanging out at his house and he's like barbecuing food for me and like playing the congas and he's like big and fat. It was like, yeah. And he, he came back and like won two more titles after that too, which is crazy because it was early on. So he came back and like, you know, basically fought like he, Barkley and stuff after that and won like the light heavyweight championship. So. But I mean, he must have been like a hometown hero in Panama. He was, he's a god in Panama. He yeah. ran for yeah. like, I think he ran for like governor or something at one point. Right. And, but he grew up in Churillo, which is like a, just a poor ass place. But he's like, it's like walking around with the Pope. Like you go anywhere with him and people are like, oh, campeón, campeón, que pasa, campeón. It's like crazy. You know, it's like amazing. It's pretty amazing. You know, I, I, I've had a couple experiences so like that in my life as a, as a commercial producer later in life, like walking around North Carolina with, with Dale Earnhardt, for example, right. like that, the you know, racer. people are just like, whoa, you know, it's like literally you just walked into a place with Jesus. Right, right. You know, right, and right, we know right. lots of famous people, but this is like another level. level. Right. Yeah. And what about, what was it like working with Salvador Sanchez? Well, he, he passed away. So he was already dead. So we were doing a whole thing on him, but he was an amazing fighter like what he was my favorite bro. What, what, what my favorite him, that was made, my favorite boxer bro what made that boxer so good i think you know there's something about mexican fighters first of all that are just like there's just like you just leave it on the on the on the canvas you know they're there and you're going to literally have to take them out what what made sanchez's career was that you know he um Jesus, I can't remember the name of the fighter now. But there was a Puerto Rican fighter. Wilfredo. Wilfredo, yeah. yeah Gomez. Wilfredo Gomez, Gomez was like destroying all the Mexican fighters. A Puerto Rican fighter, big mouth, talking mad shit all the time. <laughs> and, and he could back it up though. He, no, he, he was fucking, he was he like, was a check. Like, like the Latin Ali. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. I mean, undefeated. And undefeated. Yeah. Like the, Ali talked a lot of shit too, but he backed it up. Yeah. So he was like that for sure. But uh Sanchez was like no he was like not he was like a very humble guy, but he was a phenomenal fighter. And when they had their fight, I think it was at the Forum or something in LA, if I remember correctly. Oh, it was in it Was it in Vegas? Maybe it was, oh. No, it was in Vegas, I in think. In Vegas, yeah. yeah, I think it was in Vegas. And it was like the mariachi band was playing beforehand and the like salsa band was, was in the playing. ring. Dude, it was like people dude, were fighting. Dude, you watch yeah, this? I've watched it a yeah, hundred times. Yeah. It's, dude, you're seeing all the, they're playing salsa and you got the Puerto Rican, you got the <laughs> champ, dude, yeah. that's undefeated. And then you've got the rancheros coming yeah, in yeah. playing the Mexican. Dude, it's like a full-on Mexican-Puerto Rican wars about War, to happen. Yeah, it's crazy. And Sanchez... I gotta see this. Salvador oh, Sanchez literally like beat him to a pulp from end to end in the ring. Just right. destroyed him. Right. Like for eight rounds, basically. And uh, that really solidified his career. He was a champion... And, uh, you know, he was a champ for a few years and then he died in a, tragically died in a car accident. So we went down to, you know, down to the area of Mexico where his family was from and like interviewed his, you know, family and his brother and we went to the grave site. So like really kind of interesting. Like a homage. Yeah, like yeah, a homage to respect. him, you know. And it, again, it's, it's Latin legends, which is for me the greatest champions, you know, at the time, Hispanic fighters at the time. You know, going down to Nicaragua and hanging out with Alexis Arguello and having him take us to his gym and like, you know, and sadly, you know, he just died not, not that long ago as well. So, you know, you it's know, interesting. It's this just in, we have some audio from uh, Latin legends. Oh, yeah. Salvador Sanchez taking out a white boy. Oh, he's taking around Lil Brad Lopez. That's what he's Oh, Danny Lil Lopez, Lopez he destroyed too. Yeah. Oh, my God. That was a crazy. And he fight. looks white. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Yeah. No, he was a great fighter from here. Uh, yeah. 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 Went through the whole juvenile. Wasn't he the guy that he went through like juvenile halls yeah, and all yeah, that yeah. stuff? 
Salvador Sanchez has kind of like almost like an afro. Almost. Oh, bro. Yeah, he had no, he had an afro. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna let you. I'm gonna put the right fights on for you. Yeah. Turn it out. When we're done, I'm gonna put the right fights on for you. Cause I had all the Salvador Sanchez discs before you could go on the internet. I ordered all the DVDs yeah. of all his fights. I paid like nine ninety nine for each one. Yeah. But his documentary is great. Let me ask you this: and we, um, we got a. Um, uh, Edward James almost narrated, you know, like we were fearless. We were fearless. We had no idea. We had like Carlos Palomino helping us and we had like Ray Mancini was like helping and advising. Was Edward James almost yelling at people to get hot chicks off the beach to his room or was he cool? No, he was cool. He just came in for a day. Of course he was cool. I remember you telling me something like you're like, around like he didn't give a fuck like he'd walk through casinos and like spit and blow you <laughs> <laughs> told me something like that like, I don't, just I don't remember man he, he, it's just a funny guy man he's yeah, just like yeah. you know like I said he was just like Jesus walking, hey, walking parting the seeds wait, hey, let me ask you a question why is it that it seems like Latin Latin Americans or Latinos or whatever how come they produce high quality fighters what's your take on that I think, you know, you're seeing it now with a lot of the Eastern Bloc countries, too, which is like, you know, you're a product of an environment where you're coming from nothing. Right. So you you, you mix that hunger, I think, with uh, with just a passion, passionate spirit and, and like, a you know, that that whole like macho, you know, energy. And it's a perfect combination, you know, like hunger and poverty mm-hmm. and like an intensity for, you know, life. I think that that's really a, a, what makes a great fighter. And you see it all the time. It's the same thing with bands, right? You can you can have this all this angst and you're, you're all living together in a, you know, in a one room apartment and you're writing this incredible music and then you become a millionaire. Mm-hmm. And it's like all that stuff goes away. And that happens to fighters as well. Like mm-hmm. it's hard to tell Mike Tyson to go run six miles in the morning when he's worth. $200 million, you know? Right. Yeah. And so, you know, you have these people that are coming from some of the poorest places in the world and that's their way out, you know? And that's what the documentary was really about too. It's showing how boxing is, you know, giving this kind of handout to, you know, to a lot of these kids from these inner city communities and, you know, third world countries. And that's what, you know, for me anyway, that's what really makes that combination work. Handout meaning hand reaching. Hand up. Yeah, hand, hand up. up right. yeah. But no, not because they're earning. Yeah, no, they're yeah, no, like, earning. Right, oh, by far. By I knew bl- what blood, you meant, sweat, and I, tears, yeah. Man, some of yeah. our fans are rabbits. So I'm like making sure everybody's clear on whatever. Right. No, no, there's no handouts in the boxing game for sure. So, you don't become a champion because somebody's handing <laughs> you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although that would be a good boxing character. Oh, they've tried it. Mm-hmm. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like to have somebody that comes from like like a like a really wealthy family that had an easy life and had the best training and all that stuff. It would be awesome to have a character like that that was actually hard to beat because that would really piss a lot of people off. Well, that would be that whole fucking Caesar thing and fucking mob thing where the fucking wrong dude got made boss. Yeah, dude's yeah. son, you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. He didn't hurt his way there. But That's interesting. Uh, you're going to take me down a Roman ancient history. Around no, but I, I do remember, I do re- I have seen like athletes where they think that the son is yeah. this guy and they put him up and they push him out. It's, I've seen it with a couple fighters. And the guy just wasn't all that, but it's a lot of hype because he's such and such son. Or co- collegiate. Who's the know, running back for, are- for North Carolina? That that white boy that's a running back. His dad was like a pro player. He came up with a bunch of money, but he's sick. He's like the best running back in the McCaffrey league right now. McCaffrey, yeah. McCaffrey, yeah. yeah. McCaffrey. I mean, it happens, but it's rare. I was going to say the guy who had the surgically put in uh biceps biceps he does an mma fight and they put him right. against they put right. him against this like 
sloppy, you know, Glass Joe type dude. Mm-hmm. But the Glass Joe dude, <laughs> even ass. though even though he's a fucking, you know, pussy, he uh-huh. fucking beats the shit out of this guy. <laughs> because the guy's got that fucking oh, shooting, shooting that, that fucking shit in, dude. It's, it's fucking it's hilarious. Ridiculous. Hilarious. All right, ridiculous. so go all on, right, Carl. So, all right, so anyway, so, yeah. So you you do the documentary boxing thing. You're starting to marry the, the, the art with your skills and your knowledge and the other things. And then at some point, you're producing... And you're producing these documentaries, and then do you transition? You, you obviously, you don't stay in that uh, arena. You worked with Esteban Oreo for a bit and uh, Mr. Cartoons, right? Oh yeah, yeah. So, so we we made the we made those couple films. Again, we were young, we didn't know better. You know, had some some issues with distribution and with our partners, and we weren't making any money at all. So then I just basically had to transition back into, you know, working in the industry. So I started right. working basically as a PA and production coordinator on television commercials for different production companies around LA. And just, you know, making my bones up through the ranks, doing that for, for a few years. I moved up pretty quickly because I'd had this other experience already. Right. So it wasn't like I was just a green PA out of, you know, 20 years old or whatever. Right. I already kind of, you, you know, I, yeah, I already knew what, you know, what was up. So I, I became a producer, I think, probably at like 28 or 29 um, and started, you know, just like Stevie said, just doing these huge music videos and produ- in like, uh, you know, mostly commercials, television commercials for the top brands across the country, you know. Without saying the brands, if you don't want to, it doesn't matter. But what are some insights? What's the behind-the-scenes commercial production really like that people don't see? Like, you, do you watch commercials now with like these like Cialis commercials with old people <laughs> like making love on top of a counter and being like, "Yeah, it's hard for me to watch now." You know, Is it? I, I, it's a different, it's a different thing. You know, I was, I was, I was doing it during the heyday when there was a lot of fat on the bone. You know, the the dot com era, and we were doing jobs where. You know, it's million and a half dollar commercials. You come in $200,000 under budget. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. And then towards the end of my career, which is why I stopped doing it, um, what started to happen, there was a strike. And then once the strike happened, the, the budgets got smaller. And then production companies or, or agencies began to realize that you could, you know, shoot these jobs in like Argentina, Mexico City, you know, Canada and stuff for a lot less money. Right. And you can buy out the talent. You know, and and for the most part, like actors in Canada are way quieter on the set and cheaper and cooler. So they just basically did that. And so all of a sudden it started to just become harder and harder because the expectation levels were the same. But, you know, they were you're you're forced to do the same job in a different country without the resources, Mm -hmm. um, you know, for for less money. So it it was it became really kind of challenging. And it just (coughs) that just started to kind of exacerbate over the years. But, yeah, during that time. You know, again, Cartoon and, and, and Esteban were old, old friends, homies for years and years and years. And, you know, Esteban, you know, as you guys probably know, he's like he was out there just shooting footage right. for years and right. years. So he had, they had this idea to do this documentary on uh, on Cartoon called Inc. initially. Mm-hmm. So, he, you know, they reached out to me and they're like, hey, let's you know, we really want to do this documentary, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, man, it sounds amazing. So we started kind of going through it all. But like he just he would just come to my house and just hand me boxes of like, <laughs> you know, f- Material. 68 hours of like just random footage with no EDL list or anything. So, so it just, people who it don't was understand. super challenging. People who don't understand. Because yeah. you're saying stuff. I understand what you're saying. Sean yeah. understands. But people who don't understand, right? What is, so no EDL list and 68 you know, hours of footage means what? 
What means that mean? means a lot of work for someone to go through it and pick the little like you know because when you're when Jewels, you when man. you look at a movie or right. you know again whether it's like this boxing documentary when you got like a an interview and then you're intercutting it with minute you know one twenty three of round number two right you're only showing ten seconds of that right so to find those like magic ten seconds in sixty eight hours of footage is right. like a needle in a haystack kind right. of scenario normally what you do when you make a documentary is you do an outline and you have a plan and you go do your interviews and then you shoot and you know where all this background footage is or at least you've documented where you know those those scenes are in the footage that you've already shot but for him it was like this passion so he was just always out there in the world just shooting right. shooting 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 hours and like you know he'd shoot an hour or something and like five minutes of it is useful the rest of it is just dudes fucking around in the background right beer, you know so it, it it was really challenging i'm so happy to see that like so much of that footage made it into this film that they just you know that LA came out Originals. yeah that was amazing right so we worked on that for a while we went and interviewed his his parents we did some of the stuff in fact i think some of the stuff that i was that i was helping him on back in the day like made it into the film great you know but uh yeah we, we just it just never sort of materialized they went off and started doing their own thing and he opened up the the shop downtown for a while and yeah and it was you know just like i went my way and you know and uh you know we haven't seen each other a lot over the years but you know i got mad love for those guys and it made me so happy to see like how well they've done and so that whole thing is going and then a new opportunity appears to you Mm -hmm. you've got the you've got the mindset or whatever it is to recognize it what was that for me you know this so now we're cut to uh 2006 i've got an old friend of mine named mike Bacchus, who's uh, also in the film business. He's an older guy. He looks like the nerdiest white dude, you know, smartest guy, like one of the smartest people I've ever met. Um, Full on scientist, like used to be a a, a writer for um, Michael Crichton. He would write all the backstory and all the characters for like Spider-Man and all this kind of stuff. So he would write all these like backstories, a lot of the science stories and stuff. But he was like a, a, a cannabis enthusiast and he was using you know, weed basically medicinally for like some of his own personal ailments and stuff. And he kind of was pouring himself into the science of cannabis. So he came to me and it was at that time where it was like, you know, super fresh still. Like people were just, it was cowboys in the industry. What year are we talking about? 2006. All right. So 14 years ago. 14 years ago. Yeah. So, and the middle of, yeah, 15 years now. Yeah. It was kind of the end of 2006. And he's like, listen, we need to open up a dispensary. There's only a handful of these in LA, you know, there's no regulation, there's no anything, but we want to open one that's just really hyper-medicinally focused because that's what this is, right? Prop 215, which for those of you who don't know, it was like the first kind of foray into regulation for cannabis. It was uh, 1996, and they passed a, a, a regulation that allowed for cannabis to be used medicinally and to be basically traded mm-hmm. and sold amongst a, a collective you know, scenario between people in California. So. Mm-hmm. You know, some people were kind of taking advantage of that because there weren't really laws, so they'd opened up shops, and there was like it was all just kind of gray area at that. And point. that was kind of like where people were trying to get prescriptions, exactly. And like walk in, like, hey, I got a medical prescription, right. but it wasn't looked at too closely. Right. So basically, the way it worked was, and, and you know, '96 was the law was passed. Not until probably about 2000 or something did you start seeing these like little shops open up. Like the first one I remember was the Yellow House on La Brea in like Hollywood back in the day. You know, and then those guys used to get raided all the time and there's a few other spots. But um, really right around like 2006, 2007, did you start seeing a few of these things start popping up? Right. And the way that it worked is that you could go and get a letter of recommendation from a doctor. Right. That 
like qualified you as a as a patient. So you go to see a doctor and you're like, "Doc, it hurts when I when I do this," and you'd be yeah, like, yeah. "Oh, you go, like, yeah. cannabis, you go." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, it wasn't looked out too closely, but uh, there you were know, doctors whose whole get down making money was just writing those little letters. They would come and approach you in supermarket yeah. parking lots. Yeah, hey, you I got be, your cannabis. Right. <laughs> there was at a time where you they were charging two hundred and fifty bucks. Right. In the, in the early days, like a doctor would would charge you two fifty, and you're right. That's all they would do. They would just write these scripts all day long. They write twenty of them. Right. You know, make four thousand dollars or something. Call Doing it a day. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's it. You wouldn't. They wouldn't even have a stethoscope in their office. You wouldn't even need necessarily <laughs> malpractice insurance or any of that shit. Exactly. None of it. Exactly. That's where all the jokes about glaucoma and all that shit comes yeah. from. That. Although, so on that note, you know, we, uh, I was like, yeah. So we started looking around, looking around and it was very difficult to find a, a spot, you right. know, when you tell the landlord that this is what you wanted to do. Nobody wanted anything to do with it. Right. And it was during the Bush administration as well when like people were, you know, the FDA, I mean the FBI and stuff and the DEA was like kicking doors in and the whole deal. There it was, was a still... fight between the federal authorities and the state authorities yeah. regarding marijuana this controlled substance blah 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 yeah bush had basically empowered the deas the local deas to basically crack down on on wheat you right. know because you're still operating under the uh controlled substance act which right. you know nixon signed in like 1970 war or something, right? on drugs yeah basically war on drugs in the 80s the whole nancy reagan thing so like you know there was all this vilification that was happening and yeah people were really taking advantage and you got to remember california is mecca for for weed so all these growers in Northern California making piles of money and now they have these avenues to kind of like sell their right. weed and give themselves kind of some sort of legitimacy, right? Because you're, right. you're operating under this this Prop 215 thing. So we were like, listen, we know that this is, you know, is what it is, but we really want to lend some kind of credibility here. So mm -hmm. it was my friend, Michael approached me um, and then we had another partner, Erica, and she was doing like a lot of PR stuff. So he let, he lent a lot of the science credibility. I did a lot of the business stuff and she did a lot of the operational stuff. And we mm -hmm. opened a little shop at the beginning of 2007 uh, in Eagle Rock. Eagle Rock, yeah. which in 2000, because you know what's interesting about what you're saying is right around that time I was working for a production company, uh -huh. Davis Entertainment. Yeah. Right, John Davis, hello, how you doing? <laughs> Hey, give me a banana, kid. No bruises, okay? Thanks. That's really <laughs> awesome. Uh, anyway, we were we one of the the they were working on um, was a sci-fi thing. Eventually, uh, there was a movie called I Robot, which started out way cooler than mm -hmm. what it became, uh, which was like a popcorn thing. But before that, it was more like Blade Runner, noir, dark sci-fi fantasy. Anyway, one of the producers was working with the screenwriter who uh, was the screenwriter for RoboCop. Mm -hmm. That guy lived in Eagle Rock. Right. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of a place called Eagle Rock. It was like far away, right? Yeah, it was yeah. like not yeah. really part of LA, but now yeah. it is. Yeah. Like no, now no, it's, it's like a, a great zero, neighborhood, yeah. right? I live in Highland Park and it's like because downtown has become this maybe right right now we're in a different situation, but like the the idea that downtown has become this culinary center and a cool spot again, not just some spot that you would go to an after hours club for a few hours and get out. Right. You know, all of a sudden all these outlying areas, El Sereno, you know, even now Boyle Heights and stuff are yeah, all right. becoming oh, places yeah. that people live. So Eagle Rock was that spot back then where like people that, you know, there were artists and stuff that didn't have a lot of money, but wanted to start a family and they like wanted to buy a little house or something right. was where you could go and do that. So it was very East side, you know, uh, back, back then it was already starting to, gentrify a bit but like it was still you know a little bit the future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly but then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about that's why we've created the hefty renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials 
To participate, simply fill up an Orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How hard was it to convince Rough. the landlord? Like, because I mean, you're t- right now. I don't know that people, unless they've been in the game as long as you have or as old as we are, I don't know that a lot of younger people can really relate or understand the concept that there was a period of time where you said that you were going to get into the dispensary business. People would laugh in your face and be like, "Yeah, that's not going to work." No, that was yeah, that was exactly right. Like, it was really difficult. We 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 looked at a bunch of spots and we were trying to be upfront. You know, some people are just like they lie to the landlord and they're like this and this and this. And then we hear about the landlord just Mm -hmm. like pulling the lease from them because, you know, it it, it was concerning for landlords because of the because of the federal raids and stuff like that. And and there was a there was a threat of like having your property actually um, seized, you know, it's like uh, so, you know, it it was really challenging. But right from the beginning for us, it was really important to, you know, kind of plant the flag for science and research. So right. what we did initially back in those days is we reached out to some scientists that we knew from UCLA. Michael had a science background and we put together a little bit of an advisory board and we started just like trying to immerse ourselves in the culture of like cannabis therapeutics and, you know, understanding the nature of like cannabinoids and, you know, what things really meant and how those things really started to kind of, um, you know, sort of work within the context of like people's you know, systems and stuff like that. And, like and that's what we... Biological medica- yeah, exactly. medical information. Exactly. The endocannabinoid system we began studying and, you know, working with these people all the time. We even put a, a girl that worked for us part-time that was getting her PhD on the endocannabinoid system and cannabis. And so it was really, that was like, we were really the first dispensary in California that mm-hmm. was like a science and research collective. Right. So, you know, we're a tiny, small shop in Eagle Rock, but people could come or call us and we could, you know, talk to them pretty uh, uh, well about, you know, how this was going to work. And, you know, we really like we, we would go meet our growers and see what they were doing. We were the first dispensary that required testing standards, you know. So back mm-hmm. in the day, like before anyone was testing cannabis, we were working with labs testing stuff. And, and you know, the, 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 the really interesting thing about that is way back in 2007 and eight we were realizing early on that like most of the stuff that was coming from Northern California and stuff had mold on it. You know, some of a lot of it had pesticides in it. What did that mean that it had mold on it? What would that do to the weed? It was moldy. So, you know, if you're a person with a, with with a compromised immune system, because you're coming here and people are telling you that like it's curing your you know, cancer and stuff. And then these guys are giving you a bunch of weed that's got mold on it. Right. You know, that's not a good thing. If you're not a healthy, if you're a healthy person, like we've, you know, we've all been smoking weed forever. I'm sure we've all smoked a ton of weed that had mold on it, but, and it doesn't affect you. But if you have like a seriously compromised immune system, it's not good. Imagine that you, cause you, and it was you beca- move out of a place because it's got mold, but you're smoking weed with mold on it. Yeah. A lot right? of it, a lot of it, like, a, and a lot of it was aspergillus mold, which is that black mold that right. they literally move you out of your house for. Right. Because what was happening is 
the the best places in the world to grow weed are these like climates that have a lot of moisture and stuff. Of course. So people, you know, these they're farmers, they're growers, they're they're stoners, and they're growing their stuff, and then they're curing stuff in a barn that's right. like humid and shitty, and they they don't know how to you know seal it in a bag properly and stuff, and you know we it had, looks we, amazing, but we had a guy that was a friend of our Tone Capone. <laughs> and he was one of those dudes that was a Humboldt dude, yeah. but not a legitimate Humboldt dude. And the, he was one of these guys that would go into like a national forest, go like on, like whatever, a half mile deep, and then make a, a fake, like just plant a bunch of weed. Yeah. And then go and harvest it and let his nails grow and get real weird. And he looked like Gandalf mixed with fucking, you know, someone from Boys in the Hood. It was a real weird look. Yeah. But the point is, is do you ever run into guys like that? All the time. And, and some of those guys are amazing. Like some of those guys are just purists. They're incredible cultivators. Right, and like savants. Like, yeah, savants and, and, and old school, like land race genetics and stuff like that. The problem is, you know, especially growing outdoors, is that you can't, you're not controlling these environments, right? right? So, you know, and there's a lot of unscrupulous people and maybe not even unscrupulous is the right term, but like, <coughs> let's say you've just spent five months or whatever, right. you know, cultivating this, you know, this, this massive grow that you've got and now you're trimming it down and you realize that it's got a bunch of spider mites on it or mold, right? Spider mites. Like, what are you going to do? Are you, are you going to, it's, it's like these little mites that they look like little tiny spider webs that are in the buds. And it's like one of the, one of these little bugs that basically loves to gravitate towards cannabis and you know, they're harmless, but it looks like shit and you're smoking like insects and stuff. Right. Right. And so it happens all the time. What are you going to do? Are you going to cut it all down and be like, Oh, sorry, no good. No, no you're, you're going to package it up and sell it to whoever wants to buy it. You're right. going to ship it to right. New York right. and it's going to be Cali weed and you're going to sell it for $4,000 <laughs> a pound. Right. Hey, hey yeah. man, yeah. does that look like a spider web to you? <laughs> no, that's just crystals, bro. Crystals, this is bro. a fat, this is a fat buzz. Well, a lot of people before they were looking at stuff with like microscopes yeah. and loops and stuff like that, it just looked like amazing weed, you know? Right. So, but when you really start getting into it, like we were doing and really investigating and looking at stuff and cracking stuff open and testing it, you know, stuff become, started to become really apparent to us. And we started talking to the industry. And then, you know, um, I guess in 2009, you know, the city, all of a sudden there was like this proliferation of all of these dispensaries. Right. You know, right. Obama became president. Right. And he and he passed this edict saying that there was going to be you know, he was going to cut the funding for the DA. There were, right. This is a state's problem, and California has this law, and it's all good. So we were like amazing. Right. But the byproduct of that for us was that all of a sudden overnight, there's 300 more dispensaries, right. Right. and they're run by like you know a bunch of different kinds of people and stuff, and that that are totally unscrupulous. And we're trying to do something where we're trying to lend credibility to the industry, right? So and they're undermining it. Yeah, on, on some level, they're kind of undermining it. What you is know? the reason why they everyone seems, is it a requirement or what, that everyone's opted for this green cross? No, I just think it's just become the moniker for the industry. Like at my shop, I don't even have a sign. You know, right. I never have. Um, but it's just an easy way for people to find you, I think. Because I you see know? that yeah. and I'm always yeah. like, eh, why, why are you, everyone's using that. Why, you know. And well, I don't know pharmacies that. have the cross, right? Right. And so like cannabis Red pharmacy cross, has a cross medical. and it's a green cross. So right. Shows, I mean, I understand the logic, but I'm yeah. always like, eh, is that a requirement or what no, is no, that? No, no, it's not. It's not. That's just a marketing thing. Yeah, it's, a, it's just an easy way for people to find you. Anthony yeah. uh, underscore 0980 wants to know, which brands do you recommend to smoke that has the clean, cleanest weed or the cleanliest weed? Well, the thing about, you know, buying weed now from uh, from any dispensary in California is that the testing standards for cannabis are higher than like the testing standards for the food that you eat from a grocery store. So everything is being tested now at parts per million. So right. I can tell you that any brand that you like, 
whether it's, you know, House of Flowers is my boy's brand or, you know, any of the brands that are out there right now. Yeah. All of them have to go through this extremely strenuous testing um, regimen. So there are you're sure that there are no pesticides, no molds, no anything in any of the strains that, that, that we carry or that anyone in a legal dispensary carries, which is why we're always pushing you know, going to these shops, even though you're paying a little bit more because you got to pay all the California state taxes and all that kind of stuff. But at least, you know, and, and specifically where the big problem is, is in the uh, in the vape cartridges. Right. And you guys heard all about that scandal last year where all these kinds of people were getting really sick and yeah. a few people were dying from it. Right. So, you know, what's happening is that, you know, obviously you can go on uh, uh, what's the Alibaba, for example, right now. Right. And and find any of the brands, Cushy Punch or whatever it is, like all their branding and stuff is there. You could just buy all the packaging. Right. So you got guys making these cartridges, growing. Their boys are growing somewhere. Right. They're spraying the stuff with pesticides. Then you're distilling it all down into the oil. Right. And the thing that, that people should understand about this is that sometimes your flower will p- just barely pass the stringent standardized testing that California has. Yeah. But then once you cook it down, just like a sauce, just like you're making pasta sauce, you're taking this thing and you're turning it into this, yeah. this big, basically, um, you've just reduced down all these like pesticides or molds or whatever down into this very concentrated mm. thing. So now you're, you're smoking a highly concentrated form of like cannabis oil and also pesticides. So which what you're saying is, is in the distillation process, mm-hmm. when you've heightened the power of the marijuana, the THC, you've no. also heightened the power of... What may have been remnant pesticides have now become an a lethal dose or a, a dose that a can really significant you. dose. Yes, right. absolutely. That's precisely right, and wow. that's the problem. And you know, people people are going to do what they're going to do. There's all these delivery services now around right. town and stuff like that, and everybody's making their hustle going. But the problem is that a lot of that stuff isn't falling under the California regulations. So right. these people are not paying their taxes. They're doing what they want to do, but more importantly, you're buying stuff. That is uh, um, highly suspect and so, could be p- potentially dangerous for you to. So, smoke. like, basically, what he's saying is, is like, in, in like, when you, when it, I don't know if you guys watched Boardwalk Empire, but Boardwalk Empire was talking about the time of prohibition when, I, and so what they would do is they would import good alcohol mm-hmm. from Canada, mm-hmm. have that packaging, and then put like bathtub gin or whatever in it. And so you're getting this exactly. dangerous shit, but you can't tell because the packaging looks like packaging that's legit. Yeah, now there are a bunch of laws and a bunch of like the government agencies, now that cannabis is legal, especially right. you know adult use legal in a lot of states, where their counterfeiting departments are getting involved and, and working with these super large cannabis brands. You know, uh, I actually represent a, a client um, it's not with cannabis, although he does, he manufactures the juice for mm-hmm. e-vape, like liquid uh, nicotine and all that shit, yep. whatever goes into that. And then also now he's moving into like, what, I think what he called was Delta 8 and some other stuff. Yeah. What's Delta 8? So uh, Delta 8 is another uh, basically, um, you know, Delta 9 is the um, molecule basically that the the tetrahydroline it's the cannabis molecule where you're getting a lot of the um psychotropic effect from cannabis right right delta 8 now is another distilled version of that which is basically not able to be tested properly by the state of california and stuff but gives you a lot of the same properties but doesn't fall under a lot of the 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 requirements and stuff like that so people are able to now um distill their cannabis in a way that you get this delta 8 and sell it legally um, sort of 
you know, because it doesn't qu- technically qualify. So there's a lot of legislation now in California to, to start qualify that. to try to, to try to kind of encapsulate that into the 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 same sort of thing. You know, um, for us, really, when we when we started, we really started becoming pioneers in like CBD. You know, so right. you've got so you've got THC, which is one of the major cannabinoids, and then you've got CBD, which is the other major cannabinoid. One is psychotropic that has the the, the delta nine, yeah, and then the the CBD doesn't, right? But it has a lot of these kind of medicinal properties as well. You know, right. anti-inflammation, cell regeneration, like a lot of things like that. You know, and and it became really interesting for us, and that was kind of the lane that we sort of started driving in um, back in the day where we really started to investigate and tried to identify these high CBD strains. And what we began to realize was that like in the, you know, there was a lot more of these like high CBD type strains with small amounts of THC. And in the sixties and seventies, people would grow these strains and they would smoke them and they wouldn't get them high. And they're like, Oh, this is bunk. I'm not going to grow this anymore. So it started to like, you started to lose a lot of these really interesting genetics. And as we started getting into the late '90s and early 2000s, began to realize, wow, this is real. Ma- there's real magic here, you know, in this like, in this powerful plant. Not only do you have these super highly potent THC plants, but you have these super highly potent CBD plants with a little bit of THC, where you're getting all this different kind of, you know, stuff. And now it's become all the rage, right? Like that's all anybody what talks do you think about. When you see that, like when you were like, you know, we were studying this stuff and discovering its mysteries, like you know, 15 years ago, and and we were trying to explain this, that, and the other thing, and nobody could really, they just couldn't wrap their, they weren't even against it, they just couldn't wrap their minds around. It. Now you look, and anybody that can make their own soap is like, yeah, CBD, baby. It's like anything else, right? Like when you see people jumping on the bandwagon. Um, the 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 bigger issue for me about all of that is that. Um, now there are all these hemp growers, right. you know, and there's a hemp. So, so just to backtrack a little bit for, for years, I was one of the founding members of an organization called the, uh, one of the original, like, uh, members to this organization called GLACA, the greater Los Angeles collectives Alliance. So we were the first, uh, collectives Alliance. So we fought for a lot of this kind of stuff. We helped a lot of the city councils and stuff usher in regulations in, uh, in 2012, we helped write and qualify a, uh, a voter initiative called Prop D that gave limited immunity from prosecution to the original 180 dispensaries. 139 of them were operational at the time. So we've always been kind of at the forefront of like working with local legislators and state legislators on creating like a real, you know, uh, uh, legitimate industry in the city of Los Angeles. And with that, some of the the, the CBD regulations. Um, cannabidiol, CBD, from a flowering, and this is my personal opinion, but it could be backed up by a lot of like real science and people that really know a lot about this kind of stuff. Cannabidiol from a flowering female plant is very different than CBD from hemp. You know, you can get CBD from hemp and they're cousin plants, but the the efficacy of CBD from hemp is very, very different than the efficacy from CBD from a flowering cannabis plant because... In a flowering cannabis plant, uh, you know, you've got all of these major and minor cannabinoids. You've got THCA and THCV and CBDA and CBG and and all of those things together, like any whole food, right, is really where the magic is, right? You, you, you All of these things work synergistically together and they give you this thing called the entourage effect. Whereas like from hemp- What's the entourage effect? It's basically this effect that you're getting from from all of the major and minor components of this plant where it kind of comes and, and it, entourage, meaning like it starts to fill your system sort of 
you know, within a few minutes, you start to feel like whether it's, you know, the relaxation or the anti-anxiety or whatever it is, you're getting the benefit of this whole plant as opposed to, you know, CBD from hemp where you're taking these giant, you know, you, you need hemp as much hemp as this couch, basically, like, you know, a, a block of four feet by four feet distilled all the way down. Um, is you're, you'll end up getting like, you know, 10 grams of, of oil from it. You know, it's a, it's like you're, you're wringing out like this plant from stems and seeds. Um, that is, uh, you know, and, and you're only getting like the CBD component and very small amounts of it. So, you know, we're seeing so much of this stuff flood the market now. Right. And in my personal opinion, it doesn't even come close to the same efficacy as like real CBD from a flowering cannabis plant. And so it's so just for Mr. and Mrs. Earbuds who might not know what efficacy means. It yeah. just means its ability to function and, and to do what it says it's going to do. Exactly. And work. Basically yeah. work as well. To, to work. Yeah. It just doesn't work. In right. my opinion, right. most of it doesn't work. Right. Unless you're getting a really high dose of it. And then you might get some relaxation or some anti-anxiety. And then... To, to take it a step further, what's happening now, because there's all this opportunity, companies from Kentucky and Canada and stuff pouring into California, and they're starting to grow hemp. So they're buying all these old fields of like soy and wheat and stuff, right? Yeah. The thing about hemp that is what makes hemp remarkable, which is a, a product that's so strong and amazing for fiber and for making clothing and stuff like that, is that you can continue to plant it in the same soil all the time because it it's called a, a bioaccumulator. It, it basically leaches all of the impurities and stuff out of the soil, so you're able to just kind of keep replanting, unlike cotton and stuff, right? So it's like a sponge. It's, a, it's exactly like a sponge. That's extremely problematic when you're trying to use it as medicine for people because, again, going back to what I was saying before, you're taking this big thing and you're distilling it down like a sauce and what we've begun to realize, and we've gone out and, and, and tested a lot of this stuff now, um, like something like 80% of this hemp stuff that we're testing now has pesticides, has heavy metals like um, lead and cadmium in it because right. they're basically absorbing all this stuff from the soil. They're doing what the plant was meant to do. And then you're wringing the and sponge. And then you're wringing the sponge into down into mouth. a sauce. And then you're just not only into your mouth, but you're distilling it down to a highly distilled potent version of it. And because hemp falls outside of the purview of the cannabis laws right now, there are no testing standards at all. So these people are making all these products we're seeing on the market. They're claiming that it's curing cancer and it's, you know, helping you with sleep and anxiety. And when you actually like go and test the products and stuff, they're either THC products or there's, there's hardly any CBD in them. And a pretty significant percentage of them have like a lot of mold, a lot of pesticide, they might a lot of heavy metals. They might be inflaming the actual things that they're claiming to cure. Oh, they're harming you like beyond a shadow of a doubt. So that's fascinating I, that you say, hold on. Not you, all the products, but like that's a That's fascinating pretty that you percent. say that because, you know, for the longest time, I got to say decades, um, you know, in Up in Smoke, when Cheech is taking Chong to meet his cousin Strawberry, right? <laughs> yeah. and he says, don't look at his birthmark, man. Yeah. And Chong, you know, he goes, hey, you know, because my cousin Strawberry, man, like he was in Vietnam and he came back, he's a little whistle, don't stare at his birthmark. And Chong says to him, yeah, well, man, you know that, that nom weed, yeah, that nom weed could really mess you up, man. After the longest time, I was laughing because I thought, oh, that's just burner hippie like mythology. It's but, Paraquat. They used, to, they used to spray it with pesticides. Yeah. But you're, that's here, why. you're actually substantiating Chong's uh, weed theory. Not only that, if you look up, if you look up what Tommy Chong says about hemp now yeah. and CBD, yeah. he'll, he'll, he'll basically corroborate what I'm saying right now. Now, I got a yeah. question. Now, I got a question. Oh, go, go, go ahead. I got to take I a piss. Was, go ahead. Oh, you're going to have to come back for this. <laughs> Hurry up and piss. All right. 
So <clears throat> I remember sitting with you and having a conversation and you were telling me, you had told me a story of how um, hemp was being made and hemp could do all this stuff that cotton, but they were going to criminalize hemp. And, and there was this whole history of how hemp got fucking outed because they were going to go with cotton. Oh, yeah. There's a whole bunch of things that hemp could have done, but they didn't because they were, I don't know. You told me a whole story about it, the history of it. Yeah, yeah. That, that goes back, I think, to the 30s or something where, you know, hemp was this magic plant, right? Like uh, uh, George Washington grew hemp. You know, people okay. were using hemp for all kinds of stuff. They were building, you know, uh, they were making rugs and fiber and rope and all kinds of stuff from it. It was this remarkable plant. But because it's a, you know, a cousin to the cannabis plant, it looks exactly the same. It just doesn't flower. Mm -hmm. Right. So people, you know, it, it wasn't that they criminalized it because people were smoking it and stuff like they did with, with marijuana. What ended up happening was... Um, I forget what his name is now, but the, the pulp lobby and the cotton lobbies back then realized that it was such a threat to their businesses because it was such a magical plant. You could replant it in the same soil. You wouldn't have to like move your, your plot of land over every time, uh -huh. till it and move it like with cotton and stuff like that. And it was so much cheaper to produce. It was so much easier to produce. There were so many different things that you can do with it. And, uh, you know, so, um, William Randolph Hearst, who owned like the original like newspapers and stuff, they were right. using pulp to print newspapers and stuff. And this like hemp all of a sudden was starting to take over the market. So they so they made it illegal and said it was just that it was cannabis, basically. So they criminalized it like cannabis because it was basically bankrupting some of these like robber barons from like the, you know, the turn of the century and stuff like newspaper people and cotton growers in the south. They and were, with cotton was king, that was the right. major thing. William Randolph Hearst, right, is Hearst Castle in mm -hmm. California. And also the guy that they made the movie Citizen Kane is based on William mm -hmm. Randolph Hearst. That's right. So so hemp has had a, a major resurgency and it's and it's had to battle against that vilification and stuff like that. And it's still illegal technically here and in many other states as well for all of those bogus reasons. I think hemp is a magical plant that should be grown and should be used for a lot of stuff. I don't necessarily think that it should be used as medicine. Um, there's a So cutting to now, moving into the future of my career in this industry, um, you know, we, uh, uh, we started a new organization called the United Cannabis Business Association. UCBA. The, the UCBA. So that was a, a spawning off of, of the Greater Los Angeles Collectives Alliance that had kind of taken its ran its course. We'd done our thing. Legalization of cannabis in California was was on the horizon. And we began to realize that there weren't really any protections for people like myself, the, the pioneers of the industry that had been doing things the right way and paying all the taxes and stuff. Prop D from 2012 was getting ready to sunset once legalization happened and we had no real protection. So we started working mm. with the city attorney and the city in crafting a new piece of legislation to basically dovetail in with the legalization of cannabis that would give all of the original 186 dispensaries um, priority standard for having real you know, shops, con continuing, basically continuing to operate our shops. And also it was a, it was a tax measure that, that put in an additional tax, a municipal tax, which is what made the politicians happy. Um, so we were able to qualify that initiative right on the heels or, or right, you know, um, in tandem with, uh, prop 64. And that basically gave us the rights that we currently have 
today, which is why there's still only 186 legal shops in the city of LA. Right. The city has issued 100 licenses currently, but they're dealing with all this you know, political stuff. And you may know some about that. You might not, not know a whole lot about it, but you know, the city has tried to, um, you know, uh, bring in more, uh, dispensaries into the fold, which we need. And they've been doing a better job at, um, you know, uh, stamping down and regulating the illicit market. But, um, what they've tried to do, which I think is in, you know, um, in the best interest of the industry and I, in something that I fully support, which is something called, um, uh, social equity where they're trying to get people, the, the most disaffected people, the people that have been, uh, the most disenfranchised and, you know, uh, the incarceration rates for, for black and brown people around marijuana for the last 60 years is like 20 to one or something like that. So the city has created these programs for any new businesses in the city of Los Angeles. You have to have a social equity component. So all of the new dispensaries, you have to have minority or majority owners that are part of the social equity program. And there's tiers to this program. You know, people that were incarcerated for a drug offense in California are tier ones and you kind of go to the front of the line. Uh, tier two people, people that live in these certain like areas uh, in the city of Los Angeles, certain zip codes, those are tier two people and you're next in line. So it's it's a it's a program that's been quite challenging to roll out. And like anything is has become sort of mired with a lot of uh, bureaucracy and uh, fraud. Right. And there are lawsuits now, which is why there's 100 new dispensaries chomping at the bit waiting to open. And they've been waiting for like six, eight months now. And we, they still haven't been able to like open their doors. Um through through the UCBA, you know, we are sort of like the gatekeepers for the state of California at this point. Like we're the ones that are, you know, helping, you know, shepherd in a lot of this legislation. We're the ones that work with local and state officials on, you know, a lot of the different like cannabis legislation. Now we work with them on like a lot of the social equity programs. I was working with L.A. Trade Tech for a while trying to get these like training programs together sure. for like African-American, and Hispanic, sure. you know, young people, because the way that the city is rolling out the program is very you know, it's strange to me. They're trying to say like, oh, you people are just owners of these businesses. And I'm like, how do you just give someone a business without any kind of formal training at all? Like understanding I'm, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. And I've been doing this 14 years. I'm still like confused. If you look in the the history of the United States, um, sometimes it happened with American Indian land. Mm -hmm. Right. So there was a situation where there was like an allotment act. And sometimes what governments will do is they'll give an opportunity to an unsophisticated person that mm-hmm. cannot take advantage of it because of their experience or level of training, or they're just not used to private property, whatever it is, right? Setting them up for failure. Setting them up for failure, but also setting them up for somebody with a bag of gold to come along and take that opportunity from them, and they yeah. don't get it, and then that person legally got it, and you had your chance. Yeah, that's precisely what this feels like. you know. And, and being in it, <laughs> up to my chin, I can tell you that that's exactly what's going to happen. Oh. Right. I mean, and they know that the, yeah. they, they, the business people whose job it is to keep other people in business and all that and keep opportunities kind of uh, uniquely selected for certain people or whatever. I mean, it might not even be that, but they know there's a long history of how you do that in yeah. a way that looks official on the front. And then it winds up in practice. I think, I, yeah, I, I think that that's going to that's going to be an unintended consequence, to be honest. I think that their hearts are in the right place. 
Like I've, I've sat in enough of these meetings with some of these people, people like Kat Packard, who's the head of the DCR. She's super smart, African-American woman. They just didn't really give her the tools to succeed. They didn't mm. give her the tools to succeed. Mm. They didn't give her the staff to succeed. Right. She really, she comes from a place of like real activism and stuff like that. And it's been really difficult for people like myself. I'm Spanish, you know, like we own, my partner's Spanish. We own a, you know, we're one of the few like Hispanic owned dispensaries in LA and you know we want this program to succeed but it's it's really obvious to us how you know how it's going to end up you see how and, diplomatic this guy is this guy is this guy you're the best he's like listen their hearts are in the right place and well, you're right they, and it is and I'm not making light of that but listen when are you going to run for office when's that happen? <laughs> this guy knows all the skeletons I have in my closet no way that's going to happen <laughs> man um <clears throat> I wanted to say, I wanted to ask something in regards to that. Yeah, what was your to... you had like a question that you made me like pee before you would ask? No, we were already talking. We were, were talking like, about the criminal. It. No, they had criminalized uh, hemp and how that had gone. Uh, George you, Washington had was planning. Yeah, that's hemp. like my favorite weed topic. Yeah. Is like, yeah. They took so George on, Washington. On but, that on that subject, real quick. So so with the hemp thing. You know, what we're pushing now is because there's this weird double standard that's happening where they're not even allowing us, dispensary owners, to sell hemp-based CBD products in our shops. Anyone can open up a, get a license for 500 bucks and open up a shop right here and just start selling hemp products. Right. No regulation, no testing standards, making whatever claims they want. But then the people that have been in it for a long time who are telling you that hemp, that, that CBD from, from cannabis is way better, but now this market, this part, this huge part of the market is being taken from, especially us, who have been really extolling the virtues of CBD for years with right. real documented scientific evidence. Right. Like I'm the only dispensary that I know of in the country that's had an IRB, which is like basically an independent research base of, of scientists. Like whenever you do any kind of human trials or any kind of like research, everything has to happen under the auspices of an IRB, right? right. So it's like an independent board that basically tells you how to do your survey taking or how you do your testing and all that kind of stuff. Right. Make and sure that the research that you're doing is up to a certain is, standard. Is following the standardized, you know, programs, right? right? And if you do that, then all of that research becomes publishable data. So right. Right. Pure we have, Yeah, exactly. So we have a lot of publishable data on cannabis you know, strains and terpene profiles and how they interact with your body and how they work with different medical conditions. And we've presented some of those findings even at like the ICRS conferences around the world and stuff. So, you know, we're very well respected when it comes to that stuff. So when we say to people like, hey, you know, fine, you're going to do this hemp thing, but you have to follow the same testing standards and stuff because you're making the same claims and it's such a close, you know, relation to the cannabis plant. And so like all these large companies, even like CVS and stuff, are like, no, 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 we don't want to do that. And you're like, you're, you mean to tell me that you want to sell all these products and you want to tell people that it's helping them and that it's curing them. Mm -hmm. But there's a high likelihood that the stuff has like heavy metals in it, like lead and cadmium or yeah, pesticides. They, and you don't want, and I'm don't. like, come on, you can't have it both ways. So that's the fight we're in right now right. with the, with the UCBA and some of the other growers alliances throughout the, the state of California. These are the things that we kind of really focus on. And then the other two components that are really important, I think, to talk about um, are the two main issues that are plaguing our industry still, even with this new wave of, you know, highly motivated, highly intelligent investors that are coming in is the, you know, the banking issues, which we've all heard about. Right. Um, number one. A lot and of, then, a lot, most, okay, so we've heard about it, but just yeah. so people don't know, there's a lot of banks that don't want to get in the business or support or be associated with. Uh, the industry, the cannabis industry, because they are not sure what the Fed's going to do, and the Fed controls a lot of banking. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I'll say that um, 
I would say that a lot of banks or most banks would definitely want to take our money. You right. know, it's a, it's a huge $2 billion industry. So they just, they're just not allowed. Like, you know, and they'll never say this out loud, but the state departments are telling them that because marijuana is still federally illegal, like a schedule one right. drug, right. you know, they, they basically tell these banks like you're, you're aiding and abetting. You're helping these people launder money. You're helping, even though it's legal in so many, like 36 states have uh, medical marijuana laws on the books. Nine states have legalization on the books. They're telling these banks, like, you can't do business with these guys, which makes it extremely challenging for, you know, people to run their businesses. Because, you are you know, we're running legitimate businesses. We have right. payroll and we pay taxes right. and we pay municipal taxes and we have to pay rent and stuff. And without and a bank account. you store that money. Yeah. And it creates a whole, you know, uh, a crisis of safety for a lot of these places because a lot of these people that want to do harm know that some of these these shops have hundreds of thousands of dollars laying around. Right. And it's created these, like, subsidiary businesses now of these, like... Um, you know, armored car security businesses where they come to these shops all the time and they pick up, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars at a time and they take them to, you know, secured facilities or they take them to, you know, there's lines now at the office of finance where you have to make an appointment and you go in there and you pay your municipal monthly tax for your, for your municipal tax or the CDTFA. It's, it could be a hundred thousand dollars. You're just walking into like the office of finance downtown with a hundred grand on you, you know, right. to pay your bill and there's cops in there and they take you to another room and they take you to this other room. It's like, it's pretty wild actually now to, wow. to, to, to go that. from, to go from being like a person who was afraid that the FBI was going to kick in the doors with the DEA right. and take you to jail to now like walking into, you know, the office of finance or going to meet with like the, the mayor or whoever it is. And then going to the office of finance and paying, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to these like cops that are taking your money for the office of finance. You know, it's pretty, it's I pretty mean, what crazy. you're watching though, when, when you wow. see that, when you watch that, what you're watching is uh, a black market that used to be a black market and how it operated. Right. And so there would be certain authorities on the take and all that other stuff, but nobody oh, yeah. could disclose it to it. Eventually they are still on the take, but now it's going to be on the books. And now the guy that's coming in to pay his taxes, which is, I mean, taxes are a version of being on the take. Yeah. That uh, and paying for whatever, and that's how business. That's how business is done, and these associations. I think people got to understand too. Um, they're really important, and people don't realize how many there are to protect the quality or the brand of a certain kind of product. For instance, like tequila, right? Yeah, you can't. You can't call anything that comes from an agave plant that's distilled if it's not done in a certain way that fulfills. The world organization around tequila. You can't call it tequila. Right. It's got to be made in a certain region, too, there, right? Like in exactly. tequila or whatever. Yeah. And same thing with olive oil. They got yeah. olive oil boards. Yeah. Yeah. Sean, olive oil, you can't call it extra virgin unless it passes certain tests that's held by a, by a group of yeah. old dudes. And, I've, and they got to sign off on it. And if you don't sign off on it, everyone's a part of these treaties and stuff, these business treaties. You can't call it virgin olive oil, extra virgin olive oil. There's something very similar in the laws here in California now where you're not allowed to call like your flower, your your weed, whatever, your brand. Yeah. Like the name of like you can't call it Sonoma, for example, or Napa unless all of it is grown in Napa. Right. So they basically put that stipulation on it because a lot of people were just, you know, right. just stealing the name because they know like Mendo, you know, whatever is like right. gold around the country or something right. like that. So nobody yeah. wants to nobody wants to buy Humboldt weed and find out later they were smoking was weed in Cleveland, in Ohio. Sacramento. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 They were selling champagne yeah. everywhere. And finally said, Same thing, you right? You can't yeah, yeah. label it champagne if it's not from No, it's got to be called sparkling wine. wine. Yeah. Right. 
So, and, and tequila, if it's not grown in winter, it's called agave spirits. Uh, south, or south. mezcal. Yeah. No, well, mezcal's not tequila. No, I know that. Okay. Yeah, it's just made from yeah, it's made from the fucking the other cactus. Right. So my dad used to make me eat that worm. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> so the other the other component that's been really challenging for the industry, and something that we really need to kind of focus on, we're going to focus a lot on this year with our lobbyists and stuff, is this other thing called Prop 280E. So. Uh, it, not sorry, not Prop 280, SB 280E, which is SB stands for Senate Bill 280E. And it's something that, so basically what happened about nine years ago or so, some Yahoo in the IRS decided, you know, hey, you know, cannabis is still federally legal. This Senate bill that was passed in the 80s during the Reagan administration applies to cannabis. And basically Senate, Senate Bill 280E was a bunch of senators getting together during the heyday of like the, the, the cocaine trade in, my, in Florida. I think I lost my audio. Are you here? Hello? Are we here? Okay, good. So uh, the, uh, uh, they got together and they said, listen, these guys, these, all these drug dealers in Miami and stuff were riding off their cars and houses and stuff like that. So they right. passed a bill saying that anything to do with the sale of a controlled substance, you can't write off. Right. Right. A corollary to the RICO. Right, exactly. So, so they basically started applying that to our businesses, which is crazy because we had laws on the books, municipal and state laws on the books that said we were allowed to, to run these businesses in a specific right. kind of way. And now with legalization, right. we were also allowed to do it in a, in a totally legal way, but they're still applying this Senate bill. So for us as small business owners, for example, they don't let us write off normal business deductions like every other small business is right. allowed to do. Right. Employees, right. like overhead, right. Uh, you know, uh, any kind of advertising, any of that kind of stuff. All Which we can write off is our cost of goods, which is just basically the products that we buy, a small amount of like, you know, our employees, and that's it. So, you know, you, you, you have your, your, your sales, you have your cost of goods that you subtract from those sales, you got a number there, and then that's your gross number and then below the line there you've right. got all your other expenses you know that every normal business runs and then that bottom line number is what every other business in the country gets to write off right right and that's the tax you pay for us we have to pay tax on that higher number so every year all these businesses that everybody thinks we're all making money and hand paying over fist and way stuff more taxes. we're paying taxes on the gross which is generally like for a lot of businesses we're totally upside down and underwater like you don't have right. the money to pay your taxes at the end of every year including us you know, so yeah. it's not the thing that people really realize. And I think that that needs to change, especially now since so many people have come around in the country and have allowed cannabis to become legitimate, legitimized in the eyes of, you know, all of the state governments. You know, that's the, that's what's on the horizon now. 280E and, you know, rescheduling or descheduling cannabis. I, I can't agree more because, quite frankly, they're probably going to use this middle ground area to squeeze out and choke off as many people as they can before these bigger corporations come in and just clean up. Yeah, we're already seeing that, the corporatization of this industry, yeah. you know. Fuck that. <laughs> Fuck that. Hey. We might get Carlos to come jump in and do some producing with us down the road here. Might. Love I think it. that's going to happen. Love it. Love to yeah, do that, brother. Yeah, you hear that? Listen, um, Cornerstone in Cor Eagle Rock? Cornerstone Wellness in Eagle Rock or Cornerstone Research Collective? Or, uh, yeah, cornerstonecollective.com. Yeah, you yeah. guys you guys need to go there. You know what? Go there, right? Get your medicine. Get educated. Then go get yourself a copy of... 
the Latin legends. Latin giants? Oh, Latin legends, yeah. Latin legends, Latin legends champions forever. Right. I think you can get it on Amazon still. Let's, yeah. get, let's just get real deep into some fucking Salvador Sanchez fucking yeah. fights, right? Oh, yeah, right? we will. Hey, when are you going to... You know what? We should just do like a, a Latin fighter show. Yeah. Yeah. Love you know, that. like all of us get like way deep in it. Yeah. Deep, yeah. And like, you know, just go fight by fight, punch by punch, just yeah. a special fucking. Go. What do you think about that? Love it. I love it. Yeah. All right. Let's do it. Um, thank you, Carlos, for coming down, brother. This thank is not the first, it's the first, but it's not the last. Oh. All right. Right. Any, anytime, you guys. Thank you. It's Come been a pleasure. Yeah, my man. Yeah. That was a great, um, great, so, great interview. Cornerstone, Eagle Rock. Uh, you got anything to plug there, tough guy? Come on, old blue, blue eyes. Sean at hardluckshow.com. And anybody who's in the market for a BMW that was driven by <laughs> yeah. old blue eyes and King Salmon. Yeah, that's right. And King Salmon, who tried to grow his own weed in a styrofoam cup, couldn't figure out why it didn't work out. Big shout out to those dead weed plants, my skinny cousin. Uh, Ovando Bowen LLP, we wear braids to court. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chumahan underscore for knowledge from all kinds of different places. See me run and fucking lecture while I run. Yeah. <laughs> and my uh, my uh, poetry. Steve, what do you got? I got Supermax Hardware. www.supermaxhardware.com. Check us out. Um, keep your eyes open for H2K. Hard H2K. Kill. We were working on it just this morning. Yep. Westlos, the documentary. Vibes, Rolling Papers, Cookies, Cannabis. Here, shout out to the Soul Assassins at Sevon Oriole. Right. Mugs, the whole crew. Big, yeah, yeah. Big shout out to Andrew Ramos, 951, cute underscore members, dot S, whatever the fuck that means. Junior 9002, six side underscore west side. To all our friends, the and Hard Luck it. Army. In the city of Santa Monica. Yes, and the city of Los Angeles. We love you. We're out of here. Hasta la vista from the Hard Luck Show.